Amen. Thank you, worship team. As you're filled with the fullness of God's goodness, is it resulting in your hearts just to want to praise the Lord and remember the story of His great works and love in your life? I hope that's a regular theme of ours, right? That as a church family this year, we've been growing in gratitude of praising our amazing Savior and Lord. Well, again, happy Mother's Day. You know, again, we're thankful for all of our mothers that the Lord has blessed this church. Uh, those of you who are biological mothers and have children in that way, or whether through adopted children or spiritual children, motherhood is a great gift that God has given to His people. It's a good creation of our good God, and I hope today that we'll each of us be remembering, especially those who played a, a motherly role in our life, and we'll thank the Lord for them, and also be sure to thank them. You know, in our family, especially uh, just by God's grace in a lot of ways, my my wife, we had our first son, Boaz, was born on Mother's Day. And so Mother's Day, like today, it's like, oh, it really helps me to remember the Mother's Day. I only have to remember Boaz's birthday, too. But it's just a, a special delight and a special joy as we, we think about that. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Brent had shared with us in the book of Philippians 4 how to grow in gospel gratitude. That's our, our annual theme this year as a church. We've been talking about that. And uh, especially thankfulness for the good news about Jesus Christ and how Jesus fills us and satisfies us. He's what makes our soul full. And last week, Pastor Brent reminded us fullness of soul only comes through a heart that is filled with Jesus. And so we've seen that example. For those of you who've been joining with us through the book of Philippians, we see the fullness of joy that Paul has been experiencing in prison right? It's a letter. Paul's in prison, yet there's a letter of rejoicing and thankfulness in every single chapter of that letter. But we might be tempted to think, you know, but that's Paul. Like, he was like an apostle. Um, You know, most likely he was probably single, and most likely he didn't have kids. So therefore, right, that's why he's so joyful even as he's going through trials. Well, That's why we need, I think, an example uh, in God's Word that we see another person who has fullness in Christ in a time of unfulfilled longings where we see God's goodness displayed and how He satisfies our hearts, where we see the themes that we saw even last week where somebody with emptiness is filled in such a way that it results in what Pastor Oakwin mentioned was a heart that is thankful we're going to see that. A heart that's rejoicing and a heart that's willing to, to give and to be generous even when God gives us the longings of our heart. And so that's why this morning we're going to look at the example of a mother. A mother that sees and experiences God's goodness that satisfies and makes her heart full. And then it's resulting in the same fruit that we've been seeing in the book of Philippians. But we're going to see it now in the life of a woman named Hannah. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. That's on page 202 of the Bible under the chair in front of you in the front section of that Bible, the Old Testament. So page 202 in your Bible. And so we're going to be looking at this mother who is shown God's goodness and to look at the, the fruit and the legacy that she's going to leave to us that we benefit because of her faith. So follow along as I begin reading in God's Word in First Samuel chapter 1. We're going to read through the first chapter. And then in chapter 2, we actually are going to see a prayer of thanksgiving that she's going to pray. I'm not going to go through that whole chapter, but I will cite portions of that praise uh, in our message today. Beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. 
Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, where the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two sons. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the, oh, sorry, two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Notice that. Notice, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So it's at this point that the Ark of the Covenant is actually in Shiloh. It's not been brought down to Jerusalem. And so just notice that this is where the people of Israel are going to worship at this point in history. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. That's interesting. All of a sudden these sons are brought in. We're going to see why. Now, when the day that, that came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, and so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Now husbands, this is a, it's a good warning right here. Well, notice what he says. Um, if you're planning to say something to your wife today, notice it does not give her the comfort that she's hoping for. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost. Here we see the priest again mentioned of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on my affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son... Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli, that's that priest, who was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went away and, she, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then beginning in verse 19, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. That means God hears saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. The man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. 
But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him, and that he may be appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Right? She wants to dedicate her son that God gave her. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the boy to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I also have also dedicated him to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're talking about God's gratitude and goodness to mothers, God's goodness to mothers, and for actions that leave a legacy of God's goodness to the next generation. See, God's word makes clear that one of the primary responsibilities of parents and especially for us as parents, is to make sure that we're regularly praising the Lord, and it's the praises of the Lord that we're to talk about to the next generation. Gratitude. Gratitude for God's goodness and His amazing works in our life should result in us leaving a legacy of God's goodness to our children. We see this in Psalms, for example, like Psalm 78. He says, "'Listen, O people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth.'" And I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us we will not conceal them from their children, but tell the generation to come, what? The praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. And we see that even in Hannah's life. Here is a story of God's goodness, of his praises, of his mighty works that are being passed down to the generations for God to cause us to worship and to give thanks. But notice what is assumed, that the goodness of God leaves a lasting legacy of gratitude to his people if they've tasted it. If you've experienced the goodness of God in your life, you're going to want to talk about it. You're going to want to pass it on. And so it's not surprising then that, for example, as a parent, if I'm not regularly growing in the love of God and remembering him and his praises in my life, that teaching and passing on to children the goodness of God is going to be lacking. See, God has given us the most important command to his people. He tells us, Hear, O Lord, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, O Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And notice the result. You're going to teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, again, the love of God is going to result in a lifestyle that's leaving a legacy about your love for God and his goodness toward you as his people where you're going to talk about it everywhere you go. You're going to be teaching your children all the time. And so as parents, as we think about, uh, you know, our lives and our responsibilities, if it's only on Sunday that I'm really regularly talking about the goodness of God in my life, 
The legacy that your children see is not just what happens on Sunday, but what happens every single day of the week. And God is saying, if that's not occurring in your life, most likely it's you're not appreciating God's goodness in your own life. That's why it's not resulting in this fruit. And so in other words, God is saying, first, we're going to have to recognize your need for God regularly if you're going to talk about God's goodness Recognize your need for God regularly. And so one of the first actions we need to take that's going to talk about the Lord's goodness to the next generation is talking regularly even about your needs before your children. It puts the backdrop on display of God's goodness in your life as God shows His faithfulness. So as a parent, you meet needs all the time. Need meter is in your job description every day. Mom, I need blank. Right? I need my shoes. I need my jacket. I need my food. I need the cereal. Right? Need meter is it. But, but one of the greatest ways you actually display God's goodness is for your children to also see you're needy. You're needy. And it, it, it's delightful to be used by God to meet the needs of others. But if we're honest, it's also exhausting. Needy people are exhausting. At, at times you come to the point where you yourself are empty and you yourself are needy. And as a parent, your children will see you at that point. And it's at that point they also learn to see, what is it that mom and dad believe fills them up? What is it that they believe satisfies them when they're at their wit's end? So the days where you say to yourself, I need some peace, I need some rest, I need somebody to care, I need something or someone outside of me, when your children then see you turn to the Lord regularly, that's going to leave a legacy that that's where goodness is found. That's where satisfaction is found. When my mom and dad are needy too, just like me, what are they turning to? See, Hannah's neediness shows God's great power on display. Our God is so full of goodness, so complete, so satisfying that He wants to meet the needs of every person. If you were to put me in a world where you say you're going to be surrounded by just needy people who are going to come to you all the time, how many of you would sign up for that? How many of you would want that? And think about the greatness of our God, that God says His kingdom is only filled with needy people. He says unless you repent and become like a little child, you can never enter my kingdom. What does that speak about the goodness of our God that he's saying, I want to be showing satisfaction and kindness, bringing fullness to my people who are needy forever. And the only people that are going to be there are needy people. They're creaturely. They're needy unlike me. And this is why we need an incredible and a satisfying God. Contrast that to, again to a, a proud parent, a parent who says that they're, they're not needy they conclude that they don't need God. Well, then the the legacy that they're going to leave to their children, right, is as they see challenge after challenge, trial after trial, the pride and the independence thinking, I have this on my own, that's what your children are going to learn too, that they don't also need God to satisfy and and to encourage them. And, And so that's why recognizing your needs starts then with taking an honest assessment of acknowledging your human limits Acknowledge your human limits. And we see Hannah understands her current condition is beyond her power and ability to fix. Because notice why. It's something that God has chosen to do in this her life up to this point. Something that she is unable to reverse unless God chooses in his goodness to act. We see this in verses two and six. Hannah had no children. 
right? And that was emphasized. But notice why. What's the reason? Because the Lord had closed her womb. It's God who gives life. And this is something that she is unable to do as a creature. She's unable to, to bring a child forth because this is something that the Lord gives and the Lord chooses to bless with. And I'm sure there are some here today who feel the weight of those words, had no children. And a day like Mother's Day can provoke all sorts of longings, all sorts of desires in your heart for children, for these specific gifts. And you might be tempted to conclude that life will only be full when I'm given these specific gifts of God. Then I'll be satisfied. Then God will show His goodness to me. Then I will be full. Well, we see a story, another story, another woman in the Bible who actually is on the reverse end of Hannah's story. If you actually remember the, the, the story of Naomi in the Bible, that was another mother in the book of Ruth who did have a husband who loved her and did have sons. And when these gifts were taken away from her life, what did she conclude? The Almighty has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The point being is Naomi experienced God's goodness. She enjoyed these gifts that right, many of us long for, all sorts of gifts and blessings of the Lord. And yet if our heart is not actually satisfied in the one who gave us these gifts and trusting in him, the moment that these temporary gifts are, are taken away that ultimately don't belong to us, how do we then perceive God? He's bitter. He's against me. When it was God who was kind and showed goodness to give us these first gifts to begin with. And this is again why we have to be reminded satisfaction comes when our heart is fully satisfied in the goodness of our God and not just in the blessings that He chooses to bring to our lives. That's just one way He shows our good, His goodness. So recognizing our creatureliness can help you appreciate the goodness of God in all sorts of ways. The more you consider how much you lack without God's goodness in so many areas of your life, you're going to be overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness in your life. Whatever way He chooses to bless, you're going to be more appreciative of those blessings and able to enjoy them to the degree that God allows you to. And so when we have longings, when we have concerns, when we feel empty at times and we're looking for satisfaction, God says it's okay to bring those concerns to Him, but, but you need to keep in mind it's me that satisfies you. That's why you should bring your concerns to me. And we see that in Hannah's life. She brings her concerns honestly to the Lord, demonstrating her need for God. And this is one way we leave a legacy to our children, praying regularly about our neediness with all the concerns that we have in our life to the Lord. Now, as you look at verses 10 and 15 and 16, does Hannah sound all put together when she brings her request to God? When she comes to God with her concerns... Notice how it describes her, right? She's weeping bitterly, you know, so much so that, you know, her actions look for Lee Eli like she's drunk. It doesn't say Hannah, her heart perfectly content, full of joy, went to the Lord, turned to God, and without crying a tear in great self-control, right, that no makeup ran down to her face, she brought her prayer request. No, it says she was greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. 
Verse 15 unpacks her continued trust in her trouble. She says, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Notice she specifically mentions one of the concerns that is so troubling to her and distressing is the provoking, the provocation, the words of Penina and how Penina would bother and irritate her so much that she's bringing these concerns to the Lord about them. We see that in verse 16. For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Now when I look at that word, great concern, do you ever feel like with concerns in your life that is this really big enough for me to like talk to God about it? Like when you read the history of Israel at this point, like the nation is running after other gods. They're not winning victorially in the land as they were supposed to because they're unfaithful to the Lord. You read about all these great things that are happening in the nation and you can conclude, why is God giving us so much detail about this one woman and her family? Of all the things he could talk about, he spends two chapters of all the history of this time. And he says, I want you to see this woman who was barren, that God cares so much about this woman and her heart and her struggle that God wants us to preserve her as an example for generations to come. And I would be tempted, right, to to think, is my great concern really that great that it matters to the Lord? And she honestly brings it to the Lord because she knows that the Lord cares and is concerned about this. You know, this truth came beautifully to display my family this week on Thursday night as I was thinking about this message. And then I come home and we had celebrated Cinco de Mayo with some tacos. So we made some tacos for tacos. And uh, we're sitting there at the family. And uh, one of my children, right, we pack the taco shell full of a taco meat. The first thing he does is he goes to eat the taco. He's so excited for this blessing that God has given. And immediately what happens, he turns the taco over and everything falls out. And he just wept bitterly in this moment. I mean, could not, right, put himself together. You know, no matter how much I tried to console him, that it's okay, you know, it's just the taco is empty. It's okay. You can put it, you can put the things back, you know, like this, and you're trying to show... And, but in his mind, this was like the greatest concern of his life. But what I loved, you know, in the moment, as I'm just thinking of this passage in my, right, there's all sorts of things that many times we think about God, that God is not greatly concerned about this, like the way that I am greatly concerned about this. And yet to be able to be reminded, God cares about the empty taco too, right? He sees the empty taco, just like he sees, right, in this woman's life, barrenness. He sees the challenges that she's going through. And amidst all that's going around in the world, right, God cares. He remembers the smallest details of our lives that are concerning to us. And so the question is, is, are you bringing the specific situations and relationships in your life that are irritating to you, to God? Are you asking for the wisdom to trust God, and to please God even in these situations. It's so easy first to turn to all sorts of people um, and to bring our complaints about our our relationships with other people when it's the Lord who's first aware of this situation and cares about this situation. And so neediness in prayer is an opportunity for your heart to be revealed, 
to show what concerns you, what values you, and, but that's also an opportunity for your children to see and for your family to see what, how your heart is weighed, what you value, what you love, what is most important in your life. And, and we're going to see Hannah's heart weighed. It's going to be sifted by the Lord. And God's going to show His kindness and goodness in weighing her heart and her motives that they're pleasing to the Lord with her concern. That this isn't just a selfish prayer that she's praying. It's a prayer centered on God's goodness and His glory in her life. And, and so that's the important part too, is when we do this, we should know that the Lord weighs our hearts. And that becomes a theme throughout this section, that the Lord weighs our hearts. And, and so when you bring your prayers to the Lord and your children hear you praying to the Lord, it's opportunities for motives and desires to be revealed, to be tested, and to be judged by God. See, one of the, the primary themes of the book of 1 Samuel is that human judgments cannot be compared to God's judgments. In other words, humans judge based on what is presented, only what we can see. So we can judge a book by the cover, whereas God judges a book by both the cover as well as the contents. See, God can see contents in ways that nobody else can. He sees motives. He sees desires. He sees thoughts in ways that no other person can. And that's actually part of God's goodness and why he's worthy of worship. See, in the book of 1 Samuel, God makes this point clear when the people of Israel choose the king of Israel. And here's what God tells them. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That's his judgment. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's actually great goodness for all of us, if we understand it rightly. See, the goodness of God uh, allows us to know that God sees, God notices, God cares to the deepest part of me, and He evaluates me at the deepest level. And that's good news for those who are trusting in God. Because what it implies is that there's somebody who can actually judge me rightly and fairly. And think about this for Hannah. She is seeking her best in this moment to be faithful to God. She's being pious. She's, being, she's praying to the Lord. She's pouring out her heart. And yet, what does the priest Eli see? Drunkenness. That's what he sees as the appearance. He looks at the outward, right? And concludes and thinks, she must be drunk. Notice her concern that she would be considered as a worthless woman, right? That's what she's like. Don't regard me like a worthless woman just based on what you see and what appears to you this way. See, that's just the biggest lie and falsehood that could be concluded from this situation. Meaning based on Eli's comment, Hannah is a worthless woman, literally a daughter of worthlessness, a woman who is good for nothing. Again, he's judging based on the outward appearance. But God is worthy of worship because he weighs Hannah's prayer. He sees her heart. As chapter 2 emphasizes, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. So it's not about Hannah's weighing. Hannah's judgment isn't ultimately based on Eli. It's based on the Lord. And God is worthy of worship as Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 emphasizes because of this. And so I want to speak briefly just to the women and the mothers of our church. Are you regularly seeing your need for God to judge you and declare your motives righteous? Is His judgment, is His weighing of your heart what you're most concerned about in life? 
Or is it the judgments of people and how, they, how it appears before you? See, if you're looking for fullness in life from trusting, let's say, your spouse and how they perceive you as a mother or as a wife, or your kids and how they appear to you as a, a parent or a child, or, or to think about, again, your coworkers, meaning none of these people know your heart and can judge you correctly. And so don't live for their approval and don't live for their judgments. There's only one person who actually can judge your heart and motives correctly, and that's the Lord. And He cares about your heart. So for example, it's easy for us to care most about what other people see about us. So if I choose to stay at home as a stay-at-home mom, they're judging me that I'm a worthless mom. I'm not contributing enough to society and to my career. Or if I go to work, those who stay at home moms, they're judging me. I'm worthless and not doing enough at home with the children. Or if I'm not married and I don't have children, they're considering me a good-for-nothing woman because only women can have babies after all. Or to, again, look at beauty. I must change my outward appearance in order that somebody would judge me and find me beautiful. And then I'm going to live my life based on that, which can change all the time in the hopes that that's where fullness and joy is found. But notice the goodness of God is to know that I'm trusting in the Lord and He weighs my hearts and my motives and His judgment is eternal and it's lasting and it's not changing. And that's the good news of Christ. That in Christ I can be made righteous. In Christ I can be forgiven. We we talked in Philippians chapter 3 that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ because as Paul talks about it, he says, I'm no longer considered worthless because I'm trusting in faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's our joy. That's the judgment we should long for the most. And when you have that, you're going to experience joy and satisfaction in ways that trusting in the outward appearance of peoples and judgments is going to leave you very unsatisfied. God tells us that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ear attend to their prayer. And that's what we see even happening in Hannah's. And so one of the legacies that you can leave to your children is an example of neediness. Your children seeing that you need justice, that you need vindication, that you need to be made right based on God judging you in Christ. What a great legacy to leave. And as you bring your needy concerns to the Lord, another impactful action then is to continue to trust God through the trials. Continue to trust God through the trials. See, God did not make all of Hannah's trials just disappear. She continued to trust God. And we see those trials were ongoing. So, for example, in verse 7, we see it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. Year after year. And there's many who know exactly that experience. As you seek to faithfully follow the Lord, maybe bringing your children to church or talking about God to your family, that immediately it seems like every time you make commitments toward God, you actually get stronger opposition, stronger provoking. And here's the good news. Hannah continues to trust God and grows and matures through this trial. And that's that's a great legacy that you can leave your children, that this testing, these trials are maturing me. And mom and dad are having the opportunity to shine forth God's goodness, that he satisfies us even in difficult times. For example, even when the culture challenges your commitments. See, the broader cultural environment, the context of this time, highlights Hannah's commitment. For example, in Judges 21-25, we read that in the days of Judges, which is the time that this was written, there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what were the people like? The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook their, the Lord their God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. And so they're unfaithful and they turn to all sorts of false gods. And there's a sense in which the anti-God culture around us in every time and every place has no fear of God. Today in America, we might say, in America, people live like Jesus is not the king. And everybody says to one another, you do you. Right? That, that is the time that many times God's people find themselves. But yet notice the commitment to worship in verse 3. Yearly to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. Very contrary to the culture. Then arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Notice again the commitment that this family is making. And that's why I would encourage all of us, one of the greatest legacies that time and time again, even at the last church family night, we heard from many testimonies was how faithful parents were in teaching their children, bringing them faithfully to hear, to church, to hear the Word of God. And so are we going to prioritize, for example, the, the gathering of the local church, right? Our culture, especially through COVID, has moved now, right? Everything is sort of online and do what's right in your own eyes, right? Well, we have to be careful making sure that we're prioritizing what God says we should be committed to as a local church, right? So prioritizing the gathering of believers, and worshiping the Lord is a, a powerful way you impact and leave a legacy to your children. I'm also thankful for our church family this year. Notice the, the sacrifice and the commitment that this family is giving. And that's what we're seeking to do as a church, right? Even in this time frame, right? We're looking at ways that we can sacrifice to bless and serve our community in the next three years. And so again, coming up in a week or so from next, next Sunday, we're going to be voting again on our strategic ministry plan that our church family has been wanting to think about how can we grow? How can we sacrifice to put first the things of the Lord and the advance of the gospel in our world and community? It also occurs when rivals rip you down. Verses 6 and 7, right? So continue to trust the Lord when rivals rip you down. For Hannah, you can imagine the pain of living with a rival in your home. And imagine the pain of having, again, love shared by a husband. And as much as the husband tries to say, am I not better, right, than ten sons to you, that doesn't provide the comfort and the satisfaction, right, to her soul and heart. We read about this, especially, that her rival would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Meaning it's not just a one-time thing. We see this in verse 7. Year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and she would not eat. Can you imagine that, that pain? Have you been there where you're so upset that you don't want to eat? To know that bitterness of heart that gnaws at you? When somebody knows you so well, they know what you like, they know what you tend to want and hope for, and they use those specific things to provoke your buttons. And just how irritating that is how frustrating that is. So for example, you may have an adult child who likes to mock you for praying for them and reaching out to them. Why? Because they know just how much you want them to know the Lord. And them knowing that desire that you have for them, what do they want to do? Irritate you with it. Or or your spouse might mock you for trying to strengthen your marriage. And so as you take steps to love, to show kindness, to change the way you are speaking, it's met immediately by provocation. Who do you think you are? I know who you are. Who do you think you're fooling? 
I remember what you were. The whole uh, assumption is that you can't grow, that you can't change. And so they provoke you in that moment. Our world is filled with rivals who are seeking to provoke God's people to stir you up. And it's in these moments we see in Hannah's example, she brings those concerns to the Lord and she trusts the Lord that God is near the brokenhearted and lifts up those crushed in spirit. And He can bless those who mourn. Uh, another challenge we see that she's facing is the spiritual leadership. So it's not just the trial of the culture. It's not just the trial at the home. But then even the leaders in the story are not at all um, following the Lord as they should be. We see the spiritual leadership is lacking. And yet as Christians, we have to continue to trust the Lord even despite this trial. Now the, the for 12, verses 12 and 17 give us an important background to Hannah's story. So the priest Eli, who you would expect to be praising God for her piety and prayer life, instead immediately pronounces a judgment and calls her a drunk when she comes up. I can't imagine the sting of those words. But it's important that we see things are not as they first appear. So here you have the priest who pronounces this judgment on Levi, uh, on uh, Hannah. But we read in, later on in the book that God actually looks at the not just the outward appearance, but the heart. And he pronounces a, ju- a judgment specifically on Eli, saying this, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? So things are not as they appear. God sees the heart of Eli and the heart of Hannah, and he's the one who ultimately is going to pronounce the judgments. So remember that at first sight, it appeared to Eli that in those reading that Hannah is the one considered a worthless woman, a daughter of good for nothingness. But we find out in chapter two, who actually pronounces who is good for nothing? It's the Lord. And who is it that's good for nothing? It's actually Eli's sons. Now the sons of Eli were worthless. They were the the sons of good for nothingness, the sons of worthlessness, because they did not know the Lord. So things are not as they seem. And that's the irony of the story is that the prayer of Eli is actually heard and God grants Hannah's request even though at first he was wrong in his judgment. See, the name Hannah means favor or grace and God grants Hannah favor and grace that she doesn't deserve as she continued to trust in God through the trials of the culture, the rivals, and even the lack of leadership. Finally, God's gra- uh, additionally, God's grace enables us to leave a legacy as we continue to keep a God-centered focus as parents. Continue to keep a God-centered focus as parents. See, when God blesses you, you have the longing, the hope to be tempted to idolize that thing, to sort of white-knuckle grip around the blessing that God gives you, and you don't want to lose it. When you've been praying for something that you really, really care about, and God then decides in his goodness to give it to you, there's a sense in which you will do anything to not lose that. But that's not at all, Hannah because her joy and satisfaction is found in the Lord. She's keeping a God-centered perspective that, that children are a gift and a blessing to, from God, and they belong to him. And we see that. He says, give your maidservants a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Notice, she doesn't back out on her vow when finally God gives her a son. It's not like she's putting God to the test and saying, okay, you bless me now, God. I didn't really mean what I prayed. No, it's all about God's glory. It's all about God's will. It's all about God's purposes. Again, we see this in verse 27. God has given me my petition. So I have given, dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated. He's given to the Lord. See, Hannah wants more than anything for her son Samuel to serve God, who was the one who gave this good blessing with this life and gift. Her heart is full of God's kindness and wants to now give 
to be generous with the very things that God has blessed her with. And as parents, we have to remember the goodness of our God similarly to give the blessings that the Lord gives us and to be generous with them back to the Lord, understanding that it's God the giver that must be central and not the gift. So parents, mothers, if, if you're a struggle with maybe being the focus of your family as your children and the blessings that God provides you, or as parents, your career, advancement, etc., there's two books I would encourage you to look at getting. One is for younger children, Tying Their Shoes by Rob Green. Tying Their Shoes by Rob Green could be a helpful resource in combating not having God at the center of your home and preparing as a young family for having children so that children are not the center and parents are not the center, but Christ is the center. Another resource, especially if you have teenagers in the home, I would encourage you is Paul Tripp's book, The Age of Opportunity. The Age of Opportunity. Finally, uh, we see Christ also must be prioritized above your kids. We see the first mention of the title Christ, the anointed king, in Hannah's prayer in verse 10, that it's ultimately that God will give strength to his king, that's the Messiah, that's Christ, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. So Hannah understands that salvation and the purpose of life is all moving toward Christ being exalted, Christ being first place. So the most loving thing I can do in leaving a legacy to my children is reminding before my children all the time, Christ is first place. Christ is what's going to be exalted. Living for his glory is what you better be about because God is contending against those who don't exalt Christ. That's the horn that's going to be exalted. And so as you evaluate sports, activities, work relationship, friendships, as a parent, are you helping regularly understand before your children, Christ must be exalted in all things. He must have first place. And does our schedule reflect that? Finally, leave a legacy by giving gratitude for God's grace. Give gratitude for God's grace. Specifically, that your requests are heard. That's emphasized throughout this passage. God heard, God heard, God heard. That's why I name him Samuel. God hears my requests and prayers. So, you know, Pastor Oaken challenged us last week that what God's kindness produces in your heart will be satisfied when your heart is full and then it's giving thanks to the Lord. And so one specific way we can grow in this is regularly giving thanks for ways that God answers your prayers. So practically, that might be helping journal specific prayer requests that as you pray and reflect on to see how the Lord might answer those prayer requests and then to give him thanks. If you're struggling to think of specific things in your life that God has answered your prayers to, I would encourage you to read through God's word, many of the prayers in the Bible, and to see how God answers prayers in the past of saints who prayed like Hannah and to see how he answered those prayers to show his care. That can encourage your heart for some of the ways that God answers prayers in the lives of his people. Also, to rejoice in your salvation. You can always rejoice in your personal salvation and give thanks to God for that. And so Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 is a prayer of salvation of the Lord and how God lifts up those who are needy and crushed in spirit. And so we can always be remembering specifically how the ways that God saved us from sin and give us thanks to that. Ways we see our path would have been different apart from Christ and give thanks for that. Additionally, you can thank the Lord for his kindness for specific ways that God watches over you as well. You know, Hannah says that the Lord gives attention to the, the way of the righteous. He, he guards their steps. And, and so maybe specifically as it relates to even the topic of motherhood, thinking about the ways that God 
specifically guarded your steps through the example of a, a mother or even the lack of a mother in your life? How did God care for you? How did he show his protective care for you in your life as you think about the influence of mothers in your life that God used? Well, I hope this Mother's Day provides a natural break and an opportunity for us to reflect on the joyful legacy that we have of God's goodness to us as his people, and that then we want to reflect that in some specific ways that we pass that goodness on to our generation, uh, the generations to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for your goodness. Lord, thank you for the ways that we see your salvation through the ages and how you even answer the prayer of your people, for example, like Hannah. Lord, we are reminded of the cultural challenges in our world that are oftentimes opposed to our commitments of putting you first. Father, I pray for um, just the mothers, for our church family uh, at this time especially, that we would be first and foremost looking toward your goodness and reflecting on it in our lives, that as we grow in our love for your goodness, Lord, that would overflow in specifically the ways that we bring our prayers to you and the ways that we seek to um, handle the trials and difficulties that we're going through, and in thankfulness and generosity, Lord, for with the gifts that you do provide us uh, that are good. Uh, Lord, I pray that our children would regularly rise up and would want to bless the generation before them, that they would describe us and our legacy as a people who knew the Lord, who knew the works of the Lord, and who told of those works regularly, daily, as we walk by the way, as we even leave from church, as we go to work, that regularly the praises and the goodness of our God would be on their lips, on our lips. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.